All right, so turn please to Ephesians chapter 3. If you want a title for this morning's message, it's called Out of This World. I've been looking forward to getting back into Ephesians and spending more time in Ephesians. We're actually going to be in Ephesians nearly every week now till around, well, it's certainly till Easter. And then we might have a very small break and then we'll go back into it and hopefully finish the book around July, August time. Um, we've rocketed through the first two chapters in about 10 weeks, so it bodes well for the, uh, the remaining four chapters. And what a book this is. You know, one of the things I love about this letter of Ephesians in particular is within the letter, you very quickly discover Paul's passionate, clear, and tangible love for these Ephesian Christians. He loves them. And he is passionate about them. As we will learn in this text today, he is writing this letter from prison. He is in a prison cell in Rome. But while he is there, he's not primarily concerned about himself. He's not moaning about the situation. He's considering it a gift from the Lord, which is astounding in and of itself. But within that context, he's also deeply concerned for the Ephesian church. He's bothered that potentially they could get downhearted that they could get discouraged because the man that planted the church, the Apostle Paul himself, is not only away from them, but he's been jailed for the faith. He's concerned that they would get discouraged as they see their talisman, the one who proclaimed the gospel to them, who the one who keeps returning to them to encourage them in the gospel, has in jail. And so he writes to them, what care and what pastoral love to this group of Christians. And what a letter it is. In chapter 1, we see how God has devised a plan before there was even time to reconcile people to himself, to save them, to make a way through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, for them to be forgiven, for them to be redeemed, for them to be adopted, for them to be completely, utterly saved, knowing that heaven is their home and being sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. In chapter 2, he then goes on to help them see that this plan was not only that God would reconcile us to himself, but that he would reconcile you to one another. That he would take different types of people, diverse people, and build them together as a family, quite literally, as a local church. The walls of hostility would come down between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, and together they would unite around the gospel and become a church. In chapter 3 then, what are we going to find is that Paul now begins to pull back the curtain on the mission for the church. The very thing that God has called the church to do. The very mission which we will discover is completely and utterly out of this world. So let's read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 13. He says, For this reason I... Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, 
and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him in faith. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your great mission for the church, your glorious plan, Lord, I am freshly humbled before you. This plan is way beyond my words. This plan is way beyond my my full comprehension. It is staggering. It is breathtaking as these words breathe life into us. Lord, would our souls be freshly encouraged today and would they freshly marvel not only at your amazing grace and mercy through the cross, but your amazing grace and mercy as you bring people together for cosmic mission. Lord, give me grace and open our eyes as we behold your amazing words. Amen. One of the hobbies I used to have, which I don't have so much anymore because I don't have time, but one of the hobbies I used to have was just quite simply surfing the web. I mean, that was an Englishman's surfing experience. Surfing in the UK is so cold, there's no way in a million years you're going to get in a cold sea. I remember when Michael was moving to the UK for a year, and he, he chatted to Pete and I and said, oh, should I bring my surfboard? And we're like, no, there's really no need. And he said, no, I'll bring my surfboard because it'll enable me to get the really thick um, what do you call it, wetsuit thing and the gloves and the booties. He's like, mate, you still want to go in the water. It is so cold. No, I'll bring it. So we pick him up from the airport. He's got his surfboard. He's got all the bits and bobs. He went out about a week later, absolutely froze himself silly and then sold his surfboard. You know, it was easy. We could have told him before he even arrived that this wasn't going to work. And in fact, we did. And that's why British people, we don't go surfing in water. We surf the net um, and that's about as, as much as, as we really do. And for many years, that's what I did. And I just found some absolutely legendary things that I, I just thought was absolutely fantastic. And when you're like 20, 22, 23 years old, these things become very, very amusing. And so I remember stumbling across, across deathclock.com. Oh, that was a personal favorite. You, you put in your height and your weight and your age, and it will tell you the very day you're going to die. It is absolutely genius. You can even set it up a clock on your computer so that you know time is ticking. We've got to get on. You know, it's a, so I know that I, I haven't got long left because my time is ticking. I remember elfyourself.com. Oh, that was, a, that was another personal favorite. Basically, it only comes out at Christmas, and you can take friends' heads or family's heads, and you can put them on little elves, and then the elves dance across the screen. That keeps your pastor amused for hours. I mean, that is just... 
absolutely genius stuff. I remember Pete Creasy and I doing it for CJ Mahaney and Dave Harvey and sending it out to them. And funnily enough, we didn't get a response. But it was very, very funny. But one of my personal favorites, in fact, probably my ultimate favorite, was myalienabduction.co.uk. Now, this is the best website I've ever seen in my entire life. And I went on the hunt for it again this week. And to my absolute dismay, it is no longer online. I know you're going to be sad about that. But do not fear, because when I went on it a few years ago, I printed it out. So, it was so classic. I thought, this bad boy needs to be printed out. And myalienabduction.co.uk. It was set up by a group of students in the UK and was absolutely fantastic. It has a whole section on here in the importance of waiting, the importance of being patient. So if you want to get abducted by an alien, you've got to stand in a certain place. It talks the whole list of possible clothings to wear to encourage aliens. Uh, there's a whole section where to be most abducted from in the UK. I like that. And it was talking about hotspots, so the best chance of getting abducted. And then it talks about which type of alien craft. So depending on what you wear will encourage different types of aliens to to pick you up. True stories. And then we came across a section which, which was just great. And it, <laughs> the whole section starts like this. Don't just take our word for it. Read some personal accounts from satisfied customers <laughs> of myalienabduction.co.uk. And these are just genius. And I thought I'd share a few with you. So Jacob from Bournemouth, he says, it was just how I always imagined it. I was sat in Pizza Hut. It was early and I was getting so excited I nearly spilled a thousand islands on my Spider-Man costume. Anyway, down on 8.45am I heard this sound. Outside, this thing, just as I imagined it. A purple velvet ball landed on the pavement. Before I knew it, I'm being sucked into the ball and I'm facing these weird-looking creatures. The rest is a bit of a blur. I remember playing table tennis, I think. And the next thing I know, I wake up in a laundry basket in a warehouse in Plymouth. It was perfect. Thank you, myalienabduction.co.uk. Sandra in Wolverhampton. This is just genius. <laughs> my husband booked me the abduction. Don't you just love that? Before you've even got into it, my husband. What is this, a birthday gift? I had no idea. I couldn't understand why he asked me to go and do the gardening in my pyjamas. Anyway, I was pruning the rhododendrons and trying not to get itchy bits in my bottoms when this thing appeared above the garage. I called to my husband. I was crying and everything, but he just stood there smiling. That's when I realized it must be a good thing. Before I could put the safety guard back on my secateurs, I was stood on a red stool on board the spaceship with all these funny little men around me. It was amazing. Thanks for the best birthday present ever. And then finally, Martin Lancaster from London. I've been abducted before, many times, but nothing like this. I was sat on a bench wearing my silver shell suit, and before I know it, I'm on a spaceship. In front of me were seven small creatures with tiny eyes and leathery skin. I will never forget the experience. Many thanks, myalienabduction.co.uk. I love that. That's just great. The challenge is, is, as you read through this website, you realize many guys are obviously taking the mick. You know, they're having a laugh, but there are some that clearly are really up for it. They're spending Friday nights and Saturday nights in their silver shell suits, 
with a saucepan on their head, waiting to be inducted, hoping that Plymouth might be the hot spot. And you think, oh my. You know, I don't know what you think about little green men and aliens and so on and so forth. My personal take is that sadly, I don't think there's anything out there apart from us. I'm not convinced by aliens. I think it's amusing. But I don't think that there is actually anything of a four-legged, green, smelly variety going to visit us in the near future. However, I do think it would be a big mistake to assume that we are all there is in this universe and all there is in this cosmos. And I think that's what Paul is telling us. See, Paul is drawing our attention in this text, particularly in verse 10, to an incredible mission of the church. He wants to help us see that as a local church, we are a part of a body that are called to link arms and know the gospel and apply the gospel and proclaim the gospel, and that as a body, we would be Jesus Christ in our communities. But in verse 10, he wants to help us see that that is not the only mission of the church. That the local church, this body, these people that God has called together in local churches also have a mission of cosmic proportions. A mission which is quite literally out of this world. John Piper, he says, most of us live our lives with far too little awareness of the stupendous realities around us. Most of us go through a day after day and seldom feel the impact of the magnitude of what we are caught up in belonging to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the ruler of the universe. And we don't take enough time to meditate on how our jobs, our home life, our leisure, our church involvement, we don't take enough time to meditate on how each of these fits into the cosmic significance of the church. And consequently, our lives often lack the flavor of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. You see, what Paul is drawing our attention to here in this text is the cosmic significance of the church. The out-of-this-world mission that is on the church universally and the out-of-this-world mission which is on the church locally. It's pretty cool. And so using verse 10 as a really a window text to understand this whole text from 1 to 13, we're going to examine three things this morning, three things in particular. Number one, who is this mission to? Number two, what is this mission all about? And number three, how do we carry out this mission? What parts are we meant to play in it? So number one, who is this mission to? Well, let's read verse 10 again so we can see. Paul says, so that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God, okay, we'll look at that in a minute, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who is this mission to? Well, it's to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In English, it's to the angels. It's to the heavenly beings, those that occupy the heavenly realms, those that occupy quite literally another dimension, those who do not have any spatial dimensions of themselves, do not have any bodies themselves, those who quite literally are angels, the spiritual beings, rulers, authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, obviously, out in the heavenly realms, there are fallen angels, as you know, if you study your Bible, Satan himself was an angel. And he led a whole army of fallen angels with him. Angels that rejected God, 
that rejected God's plan, that rejected God's authority, and rebelled against God as the master of the universe. And we read about them later on. If you, if you turn over the page to Ephesians 6, in verse 12, Paul is going to be talking to us about the importance and priority of, of dressing ourselves in the whole armor of God. And he explains in verse 12 why. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil, listen, in the heavenly places. He's talking there about fallen angels, how fallen angels will seek to scupper Christians, how they will be the, the, the lie feeders to Christians. They will mask themselves as children of light, but ultimately they will want to deceive and rob us of joy and peace and hope in Jesus Christ as our personal saviour. So he spends time in Ephesians 6, which I'm looking forward to, addressing us as to how we arm ourselves for that so that we not fall or succumb to their temptations. But there's also a lot of good angels out there There are angels that worship around the throne room of God. Now, if you remember when we studied Gabriel just before Christmas with Mary, we're not talking about an overweight toddler with wings here. We're talking about a huge being. These angels are massive. They are vast in their worth and vast in their splendor. They appear and announce the birth of Jesus Christ to the shepherds. And what is the response? The shepherds fall to the ground in fear because these angels are incredible. And in Luke there, it talks about that. The angels fill the sky and make a declaration that Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the Savior of the world, has indeed been born. According to this text in Ephesians 3, our mission is to them. They haven't just come to announce Jesus Christ's birth, but now, in some way, as a local church, we have a mission to them, to the angels in the heavenly places. Well, what's that mission all about, number two? Well, let's read again, verse 10. Let's examine together. And we really have to think about this, and you're going to need to follow me through on this, otherwise we are in trouble. Verse 10 again. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known. What is our mission? Our mission is that the manifold wisdom might be made known to the angels in the heavenly places. It's pretty cool, eh? I mean, one of the things that freaked me out this week is you realize we're being watched. But that's what he's saying you're being watched. You're being examined by those in the heavenly places. And what is it that they're looking out for? Well, they're looking out for the manifold wisdom of God. They want to see God's wisdom. They want to see God's multifaceted wisdom and splendor. Where are they going to see it? Well, through the church somehow. So this mission is to the angels, and the mission itself is all about making the manifold wisdom of God made known to them. Now, follow along the argument. Before we can really understand what the manifold wisdom of God is, we must first of all establish, what is this mystery? You see, in verses 1 through 9, Paul talks a lot about this mystery. He uses the word mysterion, which is the Greek word that we now translate mystery. So in verse 3 he says it, in verse 4 he says it, in verse 6 he says it, in verse 9 he says it. 
And if we're going to understand the manifold wisdom of God that we need to make known to the angels, we need to first of all back up and understand what is that mysterion that he's talking about there? What is that mystery that he's spending so long talking about? Well, the argument really starts by understanding the differences in the word mystery. See, in English, when we say mystery, what that means is something that we don't know, isn't it? Something that we can't figure out. I remember as a kid, I remember watching this illusionist, and it really freaked me out. But I was watching him on telly, and he said, oh, go, go, go and find your mum and dad and get a pack of cards. He gave about 10 seconds to do it, but you come in halfway through now the act. And so I got this pack of cards, and, and he says, right, well, deal out the cards. So I did everything that he's telling me to do on the screen. Take away that pack, take away that pack, take away that section. Okay, now you've got five cards. Lay your five cards out, lay my five cards out. Pick the middle card, pick the middle card. Six of clubs. And he holds up on the screen six of clubs. And you think, how did he do that? How does that work? How on earth? You know it's an illusion. But how did he do that? How did he know that it was going to be the six of clubs that I was going to have in front of this TV screen? How on earth did he do that? Well, it's a mystery. I don't know. And I still don't know how on earth he did that. And when we say mystery in the English, that's what it means. It's a secret. They're not going to tell you, and we don't know. But that, that's not the case in the Greek. When they use the word mystery in the Greek, it simply means something that was unknown but that has now been revealed. It's talking about an open secret, something that was once veiled, but isn't any longer. And that's how that word functions, which is then quite different. So fundamentally, Paul is talking in verses 3, 4, 6, and 9 about something that was once hidden that has now been revealed, a mystery that has now come alive, an open secret. In verses 1 through 9 then, What Paul really does is review for us how God gave him this mystery and then called him to take this mystery out to the Gentiles. And you're going to need to work with me on this. You're going to need to stay with me and think about this. Otherwise, you're not going to understand what the wisdom of God is. He is basically spending all this time in verses 1 through 9 explaining how this mystery was birthed in his own life and how God, in incredible grace, called him to share this mystery above and beyond where he presently was. You see, Paul, self-confessed in verse 8, was a seriously unlikely candidate to receive this mystery, wasn't he? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's staggering. In verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. That's humble. Paul is staggered. He's staggered that he's a Christian. He's amazed in the grace of God that he has been entrusted with anything in terms of a Godward orientation. And it is staggering when you review Paul's past. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul hated Gentiles with an absolute passion. And the only ones that he hated more than Gentiles were Christians. He hated Christians. And so when you get put, first get introduced to Paul in the New Testament in the book of Acts, you find Paul holding people's coats and jackets with a smile on their face as they brandish stones to throw at Stephen. Paul then goes around the place just trying to jail Christians. He wants to gather them together to put them through false trials so they can be stoned. He hates Christians. He is an incredibly passionate opposer of Christianity in all of its glory. But God 
full of grace and full of mercy, calls Paul. God, full of grace and mercy, stops Paul on the road to Damascus. He knocks him off his horse and he reveals the splendor of the gospel to Paul. He calls Paul by name. Paul gives his life to Jesus Christ, having met Jesus through this experience. He gives his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And God, in that moment, entrusts something to Paul a mystery. He says it in verse 2. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardships of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul wants the reader to know and the church to know this didn't start with me. I didn't go looking for God and I didn't go looking for some divine mystery to work out. Now, this started with God. It started with him pursuing me, and it started with him giving me a mystery, an open secret. Well, God called Paul to preach it, to be a messenger, to be an apostle, an evangelion, an apostle and messenger of hope, of this mystery. And so Paul began to do that, and in no time at all, through Paul's preaching, God revealed that mystery to the 12 apostles. That's what we read about here in verse 5. God, in all his grace, through Paul, opened the eyes of all the other 12 apostles, the 12 men who had seen up close and personal the resurrection of Jesus Christ with their own eyes. Men who had seen Jesus and walked with Jesus in his life and death. Men who had literally seen Jesus in all things and who had borne witness to Jesus. God in grace through Paul, as he explained the mystery, opened the 12 apostles' eyes to this mystery, to this open secret. And he probably is suspense by now over, well, what's the mystery? It's in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Did you get that? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 2,000 years ago, this would have been a groundbreaking revelation. This would have been a stop-press moment. It was always understood all the way through the Old Testament that God's people, the Jewish nation, would be, bring a blessing to all the nations. But it was always understood and perceived that that would mean that everybody would have to become a Jew. But that's not what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, no, something's different now. God has revealed to me a mystery that you are indeed going to be a blessing to all the nations, but not by people becoming Jews. God provided through Jesus Christ, and now there's a new race. There's a new church. People from every tribe and language and nation, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, that are being built together. The walls of the temple have come tumbling and down, and now the mystery is that God is not only saving these individuals, he's bringing them together as members, as partakers, on equal grounds, on equal heirs, before the majesty of the king. We're all on level ground through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. James Montgomery Boyce in his wonderful 
commentary on Ephesians. He says, It is true that God announced his intention of saving Gentiles as well as Jews from the beginning. But before the coming of Christ, it was understood that this was, hap- this was to happen only as the Gentiles became Jews through proselytizing. A Gentile could happen, could approach the God of Israel, but only as an Israelite. He had to become a member of the covenant people through the rite of circumcision. The new thing revealed to Paul is that this approach was no longer necessary. Christ has broken down that wall, making one new people out of two previously divided people. So now both Jew and Gentile approach God equally on Christ's finished work alone. This would have been quite a shock. And this was indeed big news. But what incredible news it was. What staggering revelation this was to all of mankind and to all who had already come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The revelation was that Jesus Christ, through his death, was not only purchasing eternal life for individuals who put their faith in him, but through his life and death and resurrection, he was forming a new people. He was taking people from every tribe and language and nation from different types, different varieties, different diversities, different hopes and dreams, different gifts and strengths and weaknesses. And he was building them together now as a new people, a family, a brotherhood, a local church, a people made up of all different types of people, a people who, according to verse 6, would now be fellow heirs, members of the same body, and equal partakers of the promises and mercies and grace in God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's not just the Jews. That's to all of God's people. Anybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, Paul began to then preach this message. The apostolic team agreed. This is indeed true. Paul, you must take this message out. We want to pray for you and we want to set you apart to the nations. We want you to go and spread the rumor of Jesus Christ high and wide and loudly. So that's what he does. In verse 8, we discern and see how Paul, full of grace and mercy, preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations and preaches God's glorious plan for the church to the nations. What starts taking place when we read it? People start getting saved. People start to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior from all the different languages and cultures and backgrounds and generations. And God then, in his grace, starts to pull them together in local churches with pastors to lead them, with people of all different gifts and mentalities, all working together under the oversight of a pastor to lead this body so that they may grow, all standing behind the good shepherd who ultimately is leading and caring for his local church. In verse 10 then, he tells us why. He crescendos with this most important verse, God's statement of intent. God is not only saving people to himself, and he is not only saving people to one another. There is a point to it. And here's the point. Here's his intent intent for the local church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers' authorities 
in the heavenly places. That's wild. So, you reveal the mystery that God is coming after people. The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, people can be saved. You reveal to the mystery then that when we do that, we become fellow heirs, fellow partakers, members of a body, and that God takes us and builds us together as a family. And now we have so that the statement of all this intent was not only so that you'd be reconciled to God and reconciled to another. Here was the point. That through your lives, that through being built together, the very heavenly realms would look on and see the manifold wisdom of God being displayed. So what does the manifold wisdom of God mean? Back to where we started. What is this manifold wisdom of God that we're to make known to the heavenly realms? Well, the manifold wisdom of God literally is the multifaceted wisdom of God. It's like a diamond with many sides and many glorious parts to it. The manifold wisdom is God's multifaceted, glorious, wide wisdom. So what is it? How do we make this manifold wisdom, how do we declare it to the heavenly realms? Listen, the point that Paul is trying to say is this. The church The local church is the instrument through which the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known in the heavenly realms as this divine mystery is worked out in their midst. What Paul is saying quite literally is this divine mystery, the gloriousness of the gospel, the profound truth that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners from every tribe and language and nation and is then going to build them together as members and partakers of the body. The profound reality is that this divine mystery when actually functioning in a local church, when people are actually getting saved and then working together and working with one another and caring for one another and doing life together and submitting to one another and teaching one another and counseling and encouraging and honoring one another, when they are doing that, the very heavenly realms are looking on and what they are seeing is the manifold wisdom of God at work. It's incredible. It's simply astounding to understand what Paul is saying. I think is to both be motivated, but it's also to realize that we have an incredible responsibility in our lives, don't we? We are called by God as a church with the angels peering over the edge of heaven to disclose to them and reveal to them the manifold wisdom of God. But number three, how do we do that then? So, okay, I get it. The mission is to the angels. The way that is going to take place is we need to disclose and reveal the manifold wisdom of God to them. How, how do we do that? <laughs> I mean, what do we do? Do we call an audience with them? Hey, you lodging? Check this out. You know, what do you do? How, how do we function in a way that really does reveal this mystery and reveal this manifold wisdom of God to them? Practically speaking, what does this look like? It looks like this. We make known the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms by revealing to them our interdependent lives, by revealing to them our ability and desire to do life together. And it is through that 
that they see the manifold wisdom of God. You know why? It's because through that, they look on and they see, God, your glorious plan of salvation is working. God, your plan to save a people to yourself, but to not only reconcile them to you, but to reconcile them to one another. People that naturally would never get along. People who naturally would be enemies of one another from different tribes and languages and nations. People who really shouldn't be linking arms and spending time encouraging one another and being kind to one another and bearing with one another and caring for one another. People that really shouldn't, on the face of it, be encouraging one another and showing hospitality to one another and showing life to one another. Lord, they are. So God, I'm amazed. As an angel, I am amazed at your manifold wisdom because what I see is a people that were once enemies of one another now linking arms and doing life together. Heckles that. You see, when we do life together for the glory of God, when we spend time caring for one another, when we spend time confessing our sin to one another, when we truly love one another and submit to one another and encourage one another and guard one another and honor one another, when we do all those things, it's not just for us. It's not even just for them. In part, it's for the heavenly realms. Because they are looking over the edge of heaven and they want to see that God's magnificent plan of salvation, the truth that God is bringing people together as members, as fellow heirs, as partakers, they are peering over the edge of heaven and they are marveling back at God as they see your plan is working. See, the mission of the church isn't just in the world. It's of cosmic proportions. And that changes everything. James Montgomery Boyce says, God is letting history unfold like a great drama upon a cosmic stage. The angels are the audience. We are the actors. And this drama is unfolding across the centuries as first Adam and Eve, then Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and all the other men and women of Christian history, both the great persons and the minor persons are brought on stage to play the part that God assigned them and speak words that come from hearts that love him. Right now, you and I are the players in this drama. And the angels are straining to look on and see the manifold wisdom of God as we go through our parts and deliver our lines. That's pretty amazing. As we go through our parts and deliver our lines, as we go through our parts of care and encouragement and humility and serving and love and bearing with one another, as we go through our parts and as we deliver our lines, the angels are looking on and they are looking to delight and see the manifold wisdom of God. How are they going to see that? They're going to see that by allowing it to function before their eyes. And the reason why they then delight so much is because as they look on, they declare to the Lord, God, you're amazing. You're full of wisdom and splendor for your plan, your great plan of reconciliation and redemption. (laughs) It's working. It's working. Jews and Gentiles coming together. 
slave and free coming together. Different languages and tribes and nations coming together to link arms and do life together for the glory of God. And as such, when we do that, we reveal God's manifold wisdom to them in the heavenly realms. You know, to really understand this, I think is to have your head blown a little bit. It's so easy to just think it's little old us doing our thing and you know what, we should be reaching out together and spending time together so we can be Jesus in the world. Yes, we should. That's exactly right. But make no mistake, Paul is also making it very clear to us. You also have a mission that is cosmic. That as a local church, as you do what you're called to do by the grace of God, the very angels will see the manifold wisdom of God displayed. I think that is both amazing, but you know, I've also been thinking this week, it's also sobering, isn't it? That's that's quite a responsibility. See, it doesn't assume that they are going to see it. That's the hope. But does my life, does your life really reveal to them God's manifold wisdom? What are they seeing? What are they seeing worked out in our midst? See, as we spend time in the rest of this book, particularly from chapters 4, which we're going to get onto in a few weeks, through to 6, Paul is going to help us with great detail in terms of application how it is we can ensure that the angels in the heavenly realms are looking on and seeing this manifold wisdom. He starts to talk to us about relationships. He starts to talk to us about the priority of doing life together. He starts to discuss with the Ephesian church what gospel-centered application within the context of local community looks like. It is mind-blowing and it is glorious and it should encourage us because it means we haven't just got to make it up and try our best. God of the universe is going to give us specific instruction as to how we can ensure that this manifold wisdom is being declared. But I still think, nonetheless, there is something in this chapter, in this text, that we can indeed take away. Something in these 13 verses that I want to draw your attention to in terms of application. Something that I think we can all too easily miss. You see, make no mistake, this text comes after two whole chapters that are saturated in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not an error. That's not just, oh, fancy that. He was filling in to make time before he gets onto the real stuff. No, that was very important and strategic and deliberate. And here then is the takeaway. If we are truly going to do life together well, then quite simply I think we would be wise to regularly allow the gospel of grace to renew our sight. Did you get that? If we are going to apply this and understand the context where chapter 3 functions in this whole letter, then we will go away understanding that our relationships are in the context of the gospel. They are gospel-driven, gospel-affected, gospel-centered. That's why he has put it right here on the back of two chapters of the glorious gospel. If we are truly going to do life together well then we would be wise to regularly allow the glorious gospel of grace to renew our sight. See, in all reality, as human beings, we're really good at spotting differences in others, aren't we? You know, it's that. We're like different smoke detectors. You know, it's just as soon as people walk in, you start assessing different people. Well, I think we're very different. This room is very different. And we start to spot, well, you know, 
People are very young here or very old here. We, we become these smoke alarms to what we feel. Oh, there's, there's a lot of different nationalities here and I'm not sure if that's going to work for me. We start to spot what different tops people are sporting. Collingwood, is it? Who the heck are they? But Collingwood, the Swans. And we start to, in our minds, discern, well, they're Collingwood, well, never mind. And there's, oh, well, you know, they need to get over it. Or we sport American football tops and we get all tribal. about. Well, that's not very nice. I think they suck. Or our soccer tops or whatever it is. And we just start spotting and discerning very clear differences in each other's lives. We do that straight away. It gets worse when we actually start talking to each other. Because when you start talking to each other, you realize there's even more differences than I ever dreamed of. You start to discuss with someone and you realize, oh, oh, so you homeschool. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, oh. you send your kids to Knox. Oh, (laughs) I see. (laughs) Oh, you send your kids to public school. Do you even care about your children? We start to see differences very quickly. We see differences in the way we bring up our children. We start to discern then how godly each other are, depending on how our kids are behaving in different ways, in different shapes and sizes. We start to discern differences in hobbies, in humor, in perspectives, in likes and dislikes, in hopes and dreams, in giftings, in desires. We start to be human smoke detectors to everybody's differences. You know, that isn't wrong to do per se. As we're going to learn in chapter 4, it's good to be diverse. It's really good. And if we don't take ourselves too seriously, we'll be able to enjoy that diversity. We'll even be able to laugh about that diversity at different times. But there will be an enjoyment within unity of that diversity. It isn't bad to have diversity. It is indeed very good. The problem comes, though, when that diversity and our differences become the things that define us. The problem comes when those differences, the way we school, our perspectives on on mission, our perspectives on um, schooling, our perspectives on marriage or dating or money, the problem comes when those different perspectives become our main thing. They become the thing that we are holding on to, the thing that is going to define us. This is who I am. Oh, that's then dangerous. And that is why this text is in chapter 3 at the end of two chapters that are gospel-saturated. See, Paul wants us to understand that the groundings of your relationships are not built around your differences. The groundings of your relationships are built around the gospel. They're built around a God who called you before there was even time who adopted you, who reconciled you, who sealed you with the Holy Spirit, who called you knowing that heaven would be your home. God who called you then to be members of a household, to be fellow heirs, partakers of the glorious promise of Jesus Christ. That's what defines you. The glorious gospel of grace, not our differences, but the very thing that unites us, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We must work hard to keep the main thing the main thing. And as a local church, we must always work hard to keep the main thing the main thing. It must be the gospel that defines us. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ must be the defining factor of this local church. I do not want to be known as a church. Oh, they're the church that is charismatic and reformed. Jolly good. And now we're the church that loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're the church that is really charismatic in your worship. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, but that's not what defines us. Oh, you're the church that's really missional with young people, and you want to brandish the gospel and take it out, and you want to do that in really quirky and fun ways. Well, I'm not even quite sure what that means, but, but not really. We just want to be a church that's about the gospel, that's about knowing the gospel and applying the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. We want to be defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must keep the main thing, the main thing. And where that relates then to our relationships is this. We must be wise to regularly allow that gospel to inform the way we view each other. Because it changes everything. When you're sitting around in a life group, and you think, man, there's a lot of strong personalities here, and we're all very different. What I want you to know is you are very different. And that's a gift of grace on this local church. But I also want you to have big eyes to see that you are also very united. And you're united in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He called you. And he saved you. And he died for you. And it is around the cross then that we gather. It is around the gospel in which we stand. And it is to the Lamb of God and the Lamb of God alone that we return to and praise. You know, folks, our mission as a local church is not only on this earth. It's of cosmic proportions. The very angels even now are on the edge of heaven peering over to discern what is the manifold wisdom of God that I will be able to see through Sovereign Grace Church. Let's let them see it. Let us do life together for the glory of God. Let us care for one another, stand with one another, love one another, honor one another, submit to one another. Let us link arms and do life together for the glory of God, that his glory may go forward, not only as we sing his praises, but as the very angels in the heavenly realms, having been fueled of seeing God's plan working in this local church, return to the King of Kings and then say, you're worthy. Your wisdom is profound and sing of his praises all the more. We have a part to play in that. So would we play it well? by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you are so clear with us and you are so kind with us. And Lord, the fact that you have called us to be a part of a church that has cosmic mission, that is insane. This is staggering. Lord, would we be sobered by this truth today? Would we be amazed by this truth? And would we be freshly fueled in our desire to do life together that you may receive all the glory? Would your manifold wisdom be proclaimed in the heavenly realms as those heavenly beings see us doing life together for your glory? Lord, have your way in our midst. Amen.